0: Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. So last week we were introduced to seven men who were to care for the Hellenistic widows. Uh, One of those men was Stephen. He was actually the first one mentioned, and we're going to dig into his story today in some detail. Uh, I do want to point out that last week, uh, Pastor Jamie covered Acts 6, 1 to 7. It took him like 40 to 45 minutes to cover seven verses, so I get to cover 68 verses today, so I hope you packed lunch. Uh, We'll we'll see how we go. Um, So... What I want to start with is, is, has anyone seen the movie Karate Kid? Who's seen that? All right, we got some work to do in this room. This is bad. Like you guys, you guys have some homework to go watch a movie. So in the Karate Kid, you have the, our, our hero is Daniel. And Daniel, he moves with his mom to a new town, and he gets in a new school, and he just starts getting picked on. He's getting bullied. The, the Cobra Kai guys are the, the local karate dojo guys, and they're, they're bullying him and beating him up and he he's he's feeling it right he's he, it's what it's like to be picked on so he goes to Mr. Miyagi who is his neighbor and, and Mr. Miyagi offers to teach him karate so he says, great I, I, I want to learn I need to learn he wants to fight right he doesn't want to defend himself he wants to become the bully at the beginning here and so what happens is, is Mr. Miyagi then gives him all the chores all the chores Right, so if you've seen the movie, you know, like he's got to paint the fence up and down, up and down, and it's hot. He's out in the sun. He's sweating. He's getting blisters, and he finally he finishes up. And Mr. Miyagi's like, no, 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 both sides, right? So he hasn't done the whole outside of the fence. So he's gonna back and he paints the fence, paints the fence, and then he has to to sand the deck, all the, the decking across this massive landscape that Mr. Miyagi has, and he's sanding it. And then he has to wax the car. So he, Mr. Miyagi has all these old cars. And Daniel has to wax on, wax off all the cars. And after who knows how long of doing all these chores, Daniel is furious. Right? He, is, he is hating on Mr. Miyagi because Miyagi has him doing all this work. He's like, I thought I was going to learn karate. So, and he's just yelling at him. And, and Mr. Miyagi goes, well, show me. Paint the fence. And, and Daniel's like, and Mr. Miyagi yells at him, and he's like, no, no. And he, like, it makes him do it really hard and fast, the movements. And he does the same for, for wax on and wax off, and he does the same for, you know, the, the, the moves to sand the, the deck. And finally, after he does this, and, and Daniel kind of gets it, Mr. Miyagi's, like, making him do this hard and fast with each of these moves, Miyagi attacks him. He just starts swinging at him, punching, kicking. And what Daniel realizes in the moment is he has actually been prepared with all of the defensive moves he needs in karate, right? As, as, as Miyagi goes to punch him, he deflects a punch away, or he hits it to high, or he knocks it low, or he swings a leg out of the way as Miyagi's trying to kick him, and he is fully prepared for the moment. And it was all of the work that he had done for Mr. Miyagi that had him really prepared, he didn't go into his, to his fight, and obviously Miyagi wasn't trying to hurt him, but he did not go into that fight thinking, I should probably learn some karate now because this guy's going to kick my backside. He was actually fully prepared. And as we look at Stephen this morning, I'm going to say that Stephen had his karate kid moment here and that he had lived a life in such a way that he was fully prepared for when the moment of attack and accusation came, so that he could give a perfect defense against what was attacking him, which were the bad actors in the synagogue here. So we're going to look at the second half of Acts chapter 6, and pretty much all of chapter 7 here, uh, as we go through. So starting in verse 8 of chapter 6, we get a little bit more background on Stephen. Remember he was Uh, Last week, introduced us to someone who was serving tables. Well, he's moved beyond that here. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This isn't what you'd expect of someone waiting tables. He's full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and signs. Actually, the first person outside of the apostles to do signs and wonders in the book of Acts. But his problems begin. Some of those who belonged, verse 9... To the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So there's some debate: was this one synagogue? Was this two synagogues? Three synagogues? It really doesn't matter. A lot of people say it was one that had different people groups as part of it. Uh, but what what I find interesting as I read this is you had like some local uh, groups, but you also had like the the Alexandrians, which was a North African group of folks, and then you had people from Cilicia and Asia, which is more like the area of Turkey. So you had different geographies represented here, but all united in their opposition to Stephen. Uh, Verse 10 But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. That didn't happen because of something that happened that second. But was a result of the life he had been living up until now, yielding to God throughout in all that he was doing. In verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, "We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God." So what happened here is, they don't like the message that Stephen is, is speaking. He was probably debating them in the synagogue, and they wanted to oppose him, so they're going around going all right, what I need you to do is say some bad things about Stephen so we can bring charges against him. right, so they're kind of whispering this at the start. And what's interesting is we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. In the Bible, when there's multiple things listed, generally speaking, that which is said first is what is most important. So they were more concerned about him speaking against Moses Then they were about him speaking against God. Twelve. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Thirteen. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, against the temple and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place And will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So they're actually moving from, from whispers about Stephen to charges against Stephen. And they're bringing him before the high priest and the council here. Why? Because he spoke against the temple, against the law. And this Jesus that he keeps talking about said he would destroy this place and change their customs. They were more connected to their customs than they were to the Lord. So when they make this accusation against Stephen, I would argue it's more an accusation against Jesus because they're worried about what Jesus said that Stephen was conveying to them, right? Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. They didn't understand that Jesus was talking about his body. They're thinking Jesus is going to destroy the building and rebuild it. And in in some regards, they worshiped that building. Like they lost track of God along the way But the building, the temple, was revered still. And Jesus was going to mess with all of their customs, right? He was going to mess with the law. Jesus says in in Matthew 5 that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so we now, there's a reason. There's no altar up here for us to, to sacrifice bulls and goats anymore, right? Jesus says, perfectly fulfilled that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled we still have the moral law Jesus wasn't you know Stephen he's not messing with that he's not saying hey don't worry about those commandment things like go do whatever you want to do No, he wasn't saying that but according to these guys he was messing with the law so and then in 15 we have the last thing before we get into to Stephen's really a sermon here and It says in gazing at him all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel so there was something sort of glowing and different about his face interestingly they had made some accusation that he was speaking ill about Moses and if I remember there was some other guy in the Old Testament that had a glowing face somewhere along the line right it was Moses right so the fact that he's supposedly speaking ill of Moses, yet he is given the same sign of God working in him as Moses was, that his face was glowing, you wonder if they're sitting there going, what have we got ourselves into? Or were they so blind to their prejudice that they didn't get the irony of Stephen's face shining? So the high priest asks him in in chapter 7 verse 1, are these things so?" so? Are these accusations true? So, we will be dealing most of our time here with Stephen's response. But before we do, I want to point out a couple things. One, Stephen was given a charge of blasphemy here. Stephen knew the Old Testament. We're going to see that as he goes through his his discourse here. But in Leviticus 24, we are told that the penalty of blasphemy was to be taken outside the town and stoned. So it is not a surprise to Stephen what awaits him as he gives this response. He knows that he is facing the death penalty based on how he responds to these folks. But I want us to look at, a few, at and for a few things as we work through the passage. One, Stephen was a man of great faith. Knowing that he is likely to be killed that he was going to be stoned through this, he does not answer in such a way to spare his life. He answers in such a way to defend the honor and integrity of the Lord and of Jesus Christ. He shows grace, and and he's filled with the Spirit as he answers his accusers. Titus 1.9 says this, uh, not speaking about Stephen, but clearly could be. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I think that's exactly what Stephen does here. He gives instruction in sound doctrine and rebukes those who contradict it. Um, I want us to see his great knowledge of Scripture, how he weaves various stories of and through the Old Testament to defend himself and really to flip the script to indict his accusers. When we finish up here, we realize that Stephen is making the accusation of them far more than he is actually defending himself, though he does do that. And and lastly, I want us to look at how he has a great knowledge of the culture that he sits in. So he answers them according to their patriarchs, according to their traditions, according to their history, right? We are called to be in this world, not of this world, right? We're to be set apart, yet we have to understand the world we're in to communicate with people, right? If, if I'm speaking in a Christian context to someone who is not Christian, we're probably speaking right past each other and there's actually no communication. But what Stephen does is he enters into that culture to communicate through that culture so that he can actually speak to those who are making accusation against him. And I want us to see that as, as we go through here. So Stephen does this through, really three primary sections here where he deals with Abraham, with Joseph, and then with Moses. And we're going to handle those quickly because there's a lot of verses uh, as we go through this seventh chapter. So, starting in verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So it seems a little weird when you first read this going like, Stephen, where are you going with this? Like I don't really even see where this Comes up as an answer to the accusations made against you, but I think there's a couple of important points that that he's bringing out. One is he creates a sense of commonality with his accusers. He says, "Our Father Abraham, you know, our patriarchs, our God." He connects with those that have accused him, and I think the, the one of some of the primary that he works through here is that Abraham was given these promises before circumcision, right? So it wasn't because Abraham followed the law. Abraham was given these promises in a land that was not his own. He had not received or entered into the promised land when Abraham received these promises that he would look forward to. Yet Abraham acted in faith. We cannot count circumcision as the means of receipt of the promise, right? His accusers looked at it and goes, we are the people of the law, therefore God's going to bless us. And he's flipping that and saying, no, you're blessed because God gave you that law, not, even though you didn't actually follow it. Like, God chose you first, you didn't obey, and then he goes, oh good, these people got circumcised, I'm going to do good things for them. That's not how it worked in God's economy. So then he moves on to Joseph in verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt... Again, interesting that he actually calls Joseph's brothers the patriarchs here, right? Again, kind of elevating them and saying, look at what your forefathers did. They sold their brother. But God was with him, verse 10, and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. 14. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. And our fathers, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Now, there's a couple things in there. If we had more time, I'd like to dig into and explain. There's this, you know, people say, I thought there was 70 people. There's, now there's 75. We're including a different list of people. You know, I thought that, that he, he bought, a, Abraham bought a different cave and Joseph had a different cave. That's true. And there's a, that, but this all reconciles with scripture when you look at who is being discussed when. I don't have the time for the sake of, of what we're covering today to get into those. If you want to talk about any of that, flag me down. We can walk through and, and reconcile those with Scripture. Scripture completely reconciles with itself, there's no issues here. Um, stop that. Uh, so, there's this history of people rejecting God's messengers and God's will. And he says, Look at, look at how they treated Joseph, they sell him into slavery. Um, Joseph is, is maybe with the clearest type of Christ we have in all Scripture, right? As a a picture of what Christ will be, and giving us a, a great sign of what Christ will fulfill. You look at Joseph, right? He is he's rejected by his brothers. He's essentially dead, right? His Jacob and the brothers assumed he was dead, like he was counted as lost, and then. No, he's now in prison in a foreign land when they think he's dead. And then he comes back. He's elevated into a a position of great authority. But in the meantime, he had this position first where there were false accusations made against him, just like there was with Jesus. And what does he do as he's elevated to being Pharaoh's right-hand man is he actually intercedes on behalf of his family and he saves his brothers and his father his whole family so there's a great picture that's similar to Christ I think Stephen is weaving that in and that picture in because again his audience has rejected Christ and they missed the boat on Christ so he is bringing that to their attention as he tells the story but also where does God deal with Joseph it's not in the promised land he's dealing with Joseph when Joseph is in Egypt and so often we see God dealing with us often most closely when we're in that foreign land, where we're not where we'd, I want to be, where we are in a time of peril, that's when God is dealing with us most closely. Um, Stephen will spend the bulk of his time here with Moses, roughly half the, the passage. So we pick up Moses in 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So, we look at it, again, very similar, like a type with Christ, where when Moses was born, they were killing all the infants. Here, because they did not want any chance of the Hebrew people growing in number and becoming more powerful than the Egyptians, because then the ability to enslave them goes down when there's more of them than there are of of the enslavers and where did Jesus go when it was time to his parents to protect him from Herod and and the killing of the baby down to Egypt again God dealing with Moses in a place not their own in Egypt 23 when he was 40 years old it came into his heart to visit his brothers the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man was wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So again, we're not given in the Exodus account that Moses had a sense of his leadership calling at the time of killing the Egyptian, but Stephen credits him with that here. And I trust the witness of the spirit through Stephen here that Moses had some understanding. And what happens is Moses, probably not the best way to lead by starting out by by killing an Egyptian, but he thinks like, oh, I'm gonna go save these people. Well, there he's rejected. Moses, remember, this all started when they accused Stephen of rejecting Moses. And, And so now Stephen's weaving in, wait a minute, you guys rejected Moses too. This isn't the first time, right? and not, not even saying Stephen did reject him, but he's bringing this up. Verse 30, he says, "When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. "I am the Lord I, sorry, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham." And of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So Moses is 40 years. He kills an Egyptian, has another 40 years living with his father in law in Midian. And now God calls him to go back to these people that have rejected him. And in 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, this man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. I don't think it's an accident that Stephen is saying that you have a history of rejecting the very person who came to save you. That's what they did to Christ. That's what he is bringing up here through the story of Moses. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He explicitly makes the connection back to Christ here. That is the prophecy Moses gives there. 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. And as and is written in the book of the prophets, this is Amos five, twenty-five to twenty-seven. I'm sure you all have that memorized. I didn't need to tell you this was Amos, right? I was kind of thinking as I was preparing this, we probably should start to memorize the verses that are quoted in the Bible. If the Bible quotes itself, it's probably worth us knowing those. And uh, It says here, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So again, they're saying... Stephen, you're mistreating Moses. Stephen goes, let's look at how they treated Moses when he was with us. So we're not going to go through the book of Exodus here, but there's 10 plagues. As the plagues are going on, the workload on the Hebrew people is growing, and their life is actually getting worse. And they're going, oh, this Moses guy, like what is he doing? We kind of you know, yeah, we were slaves, but, like, we could get by now. I got to make bricks without straw. I got to get twice as many bricks. Like, this is just awful. Finally, after that 10th plague, they are out. They are marching away. They're escaping Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea, and they're trapped, and the Egyptian army is coming in behind them, and they go, this jerk Moses did all this just to get us killed out here in front of the sea. The Lord, through Moses, delivers them by parting the Red Sea. And they get to the other side of the sea. The Egyptian armies drowned, They're not the problem anymore. They're out in the wilderness. And what do they do now? They go, thank you, Moses. You're the best. No. I, I like the old King James here because it uses the word, what do they do for 40 years? They murmur they groan, they grumble, they, mm, moses. they're just unhappy. What does God do is he miraculously provides food for them. They have manna every day and they're like, this is lame, I wish I had meat. So what does God do? He gives them a lot of quail. Like they're literally drowning in quail. Right? All the meat they, they still complain, then they complain about that. Everything that God did for them, they found a way to complain. And, Again, they accuse Stephen of speaking against the law, and then Stephen brings that up and goes, well, let's consider when they got the law. Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the law. It took some time. I don't know how long he's up there for. I'm sure Exodus says he was up there 40 days and 40 nights, like everything. But they go, this guy Moses, I don't know if he's coming back. He's been gone a long time. We probably should make our own God's. So they gather all the jewelry up, they throw it in the fire with the help of Aaron, they fashion a calf, and they start worshiping a golden calf. They're not simply rejecting Moses here, they're rejecting the Lord, right? Moses is merely God's representative to them. You know, Moses is not the object of worship. They're rejecting the Lord. They grumble, they complain. They rejected Moses first. Stephen brings this up. And where does all this happen? Outside the promised land. Where is the law given? Outside of the temple. Right? God deals with his people wherever they are. It does not require a temple. It does not require a promised land. God deals with us where we are. Stephen pivots in verse 40, 44 and following here. He said, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. We have the tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, before they had the temple. They didn't have the temple back then. So you're worried about this temple. This was built later. 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joseph when they they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David. So from Moses to David, there was no temple. There was just there was the tabernacle, the tent. It moved with them as they moved. And David, he found favor in the sight of God, 46, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. And I think this is, this is where Stephen starts to pivot and starts to really go from Subtly accusing them of what they're accusing him of to being much more direct about it. In 48, he says, Yet the Most High God, Most High, does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says in 49, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things. So the temple is amazing, right? You you look at the description of that and how it was built, all the gold, the silver, the fine linens, the ropes, everything it took to build that, that building. And God just says, I made all those things. You didn't make that for me. I'm, I said, let there be, and all that gold was there. Let there be all that silver was there. Let there be all those, everything you'd use to make the linens. It was all me. I made that stuff. And they thought this building was elevated above the God who made it all. So, this kind of finishes Stephen's Defense of himself, and then he really turns it on them in a minute here. But I think what we saw is that that he has laid out here that God is the people have rejected God's messengers and God's will throughout their history. They they what they accuse him of, they've been doing for the couple thousand years, fifteen years, fifteen hundred years since the giving of the law. That God was not always worshipped in a certain place. It could have been in Egypt, it could have been in Midian, it could have been in the wilderness, it could have been in Haran before Abraham moved. People worshiped the Lord where they are. There wasn't always a temple. And I think it's so important that God so often dealt with people most closely when they were pilgrims. They weren't sitting in the promised land just soaking it up, they were in places of great peril, places where they were foreigners, where they were not welcome, yet that is where God was dealing with them. And Stephen flips this now and really indicts them in 51 to 53. He says, you stiff-necked people. Would you have the boldness to, (laughs) someone's accusing you of blasphemy. They're going to be putting you to death probably in a few minutes based on how this is going. And your response is, well, that's because you're a stiff-necked people that's really strong language and he goes uncircumcised in heart and ears so here he's saying like you say I mess with the law the only law you get is the circumcision of your flesh you do the outside stuff of the law to make yourself look good but the circumcision of your heart where you actually take what the law intends and you make that your own and you live that out you got none of that you're uncircumcised in your heart And he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, if you take any kind of communication study or conflict resolution, the first thing they tell you is don't use words like always and never. (laughs) And don't say, you always, you never. Like, here, Stephen's like, no, no, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Why does he say that? Because they do. As your fathers did, so do you. This is where he ties everything he just said right to them. He talks, your fathers rejected Joseph. They reject Moses. They reject the law. They defame the temple by worshiping false gods. They worship gods that are full of sexual perversion, full of worshiping the creature rather than the creator, right? He says, all those things they did, you do the same thing. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. Remember, you do exactly what you accuse me of doing. You've been doing it. Your forefathers have done it, and now you're doing it. They killed those who said Christ was coming. They killed Christ, and now they're trying to kill those that spoke about him after he has been resurrected and ascended. So what do they do? not going to do too much here. Uh, Pastor Bob's going to be digging into this passage next week, but I feel like I can't leave you on the cliffhanger here. Um, What do they do? They they stone him. Fifty-four, and I know we don't have these. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. They stoned him. They... (laughs) There's no regard to what he said. There was no taking it into their heart. There was no consideration to it. To him, when they said you're the bad guy, when he says that to them, that was enough for them to know they must stone him because they clearly couldn't be guilty. They were the elites. Um, Stephen became here the first Christian martyr. So we had obviously many, many, many cents but in the church age post the work of Christ here on earth, he was the first martyr. And I said, as I started, where Stephen had his karate kid moment, right, where he was fully prepared to make this defense. Uh, We saw he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, This wasn't by chance, right? He had lived a life up until this point in preparation for it. He clearly knew the scriptures, right? He was ready for this. He had yielded consistently to the Spirit of God through his life, such that when this time of testing came, he could answer boldly, He was, as we talked about, he was well-versed in his culture. He talked about their fathers, the patriarchs, their law. He focused on things that were specifically important to them as he made his answer. He knew the word of God, the stories of Joseph and Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and Joshua. He knew these things. He Against all of us, he can quote Amos five twenty five to twenty seven, right? He knows those things. That wasn't because he said time out when he, before he went to the high priest. He said, "I need to stay on our court case here. Uh, I'm going to need to interview some witnesses. I'm going to need to do a little bit of research. I want to check some case law, and then in a couple of weeks I'll come back and I'm going to give you my answer." He did not have that luxury. He was quite literally dragged directly to the high priest. And this is what came out of him at a moment's notice. Because he actually knew the word of God. We're told to do the same. 1 Peter 3.15 is a pretty well-known verse, but I will read it for us. It says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason For the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Preparation doesn't happen in the moment. It happens in everything that leads up to the moment. And Stephen was prepared. Stephen knew that the reward was more valuable than his life. He knew the charge of blasphemy was was certain stoning if he was convicted. And yet he did not shy away. There's nothing in his answer that says, oh, well, I didn't really mean that way, or you could take it that way, but I meant it this way. There was no weaseling out to try to save his life. He boldly proclaimed the word of God to them, and again, I said, he turned the indictment onto them rather than himself, and he knew where that was going to lead, yet he answered boldly anyway. I think this is, again, I think it's interesting that we meet Saul, who becomes Paul in this passage, because Paul later says about himself what I think Stephen would have said, yeah, me too. In Philippians 3, 7-11, Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, that was written after Stephen. Yet I think Stephen would 100% say, that's where I was in that moment. He could have tried to save his life. He could have tried to save his position. But he said, no, no, I want Christ more than any of those things. That's, that's tremendously more valuable. I'll throw away everything I have if it means I get Christ. He was ready for his Karate Kid moment. Will we have one? Will we have a Karate Kid moment? It's unlikely that we are going to be stoned by being brought before a high priest. That's really, really unlikely. But we will have times where we are tested, we're tempted, we're tried... And we will either be ready to give an answer for a reason for the hope that was in us, or we will not. And our preparation in advance is what will determine how we are in that moment. Someone will ask you why you are so full of hatred because of how you consider human sexuality. Someone will try to get you fired from your job because of how you answer or participate or don't participate in something that goes on at work. Your family may have, there may be people in your family that will mock you for following the the fairy god in the sky, as they will deride the Lord. There's a hundred different things that can happen, and you will have an opportunity to respond. Will we say of you, will it be said of me That we were full of grace and power, full of the Holy Spirit at that time. Will our response be just this overflow of scripture as we defend the Lord in that moment? Or will we be wishing? I really wish I would have studied my Bible more. I know there's a ver I don't know where it is. I just it says something kind of sort of like, or will we just boldly know the Word of God? How will we be prepared for the moment? will we have that well of scripture to draw on? We have to be a people of the word. We have to be a people of prayer. We have to be people that consistently yield to the Holy Spirit throughout so that when that time of great testing comes, we're prepared. You know, there's enough sports analogy sitting here. You don't just show up at the game. It takes years of practice to get to that point. And if we don't practice, we won't be ready for the game. We won't be ready for our Karate Kid moment. And I think it's worth pointing out that, to finish up here, is that Stephen, before this audience, had this guy Saul there. And I don't want to steal Pastor Bob Sunder for next week at all here. But the fact that Saul, miraculously, through the intervention of the Lord, became Paul down the road, there's an impact of of Stephen's work here. The fact that it's recorded in Holy Scripture and, and God dedicated a couple chapters to Stephen, this was significant. He was ready for his moment will we be ready for ours so let's pray father god we uh, thank you for the witness of stephen we thank you for uh, his faithfulness to you we thank you that he is uh, such a great example of of a man who yielded to the holy spirit who had great faith who persevered in the face of death uh, but it was a man who knew the word of god he knew your scriptures uh, Lord, he, he also knew the culture he was in and could speak to those and, sp- and leave us that witness. Lord, we ask is that we would be aware of, in our lives of things that are, are times of opportunity, times of trial, times of testing, that we would prepare well by being people of your word, that we'd be people of prayer, we'd be people of yielding to your Holy Spirit, uh, that we would honor you in those moments, uh, that we would be ready with your word, to give a reason, to make a defense for the hope that is in us. Because it is a great hope. It is a hope that this world needs and one we must share. In Jesus' name, amen.